Let's read together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to hear his word. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it never fails. Lord, thank you that even though you use frail ministers who do err to preach your word, you still use us, Lord, and manage to get that word through us into people's hearts. And so, Lord, I pray today as we come to look at this passage of Scripture, Lord, that even though the, the passage may be very familiar to us, we've maybe heard it dozens of times, we've maybe heard it preached on a handful of times, but Lord, we pray that there will be room in our hearts today to receive all that your Spirit is wanting to say through it. And Lord, we pray that as we leave this place today, we would leave changed. We would leave different. We would leave edified and built up in your word. Amen. This fellow here with the red circle around his face is a man by the name of Victor Lustig. How many people have heard of Victor Lustig? Anybody heard of him? Now, he's actually famous for being one of the world's most famous con artists. He lived in the early part of the 20th century. He was born in Bavaria. And in 1925, this man, Victor Lustig, he was reading a newspaper one morning, and he read how the Eiffel Tower was a real problem to maintain. The French were having a problem maintaining the Eiffel Tower. Have you, any, anybody been to the Eiffel Tower? Been up the Eiffel Tower? It's a huge, huge structure. And this article said that there was a, an issue um, that the town was having in maintaining it. And so what Victor did was that he hatched an idea. He went around and called several scrap merchants in Paris pretending to be a government official by the name of Count Victor Lustig. He called six scrap dealers in Paris and he told them that the French government were looking to scrap the Eiffel Tower and he was going to sell off the parts to the highest bidder. What actually happened was that one of these scrap dealers made a deal with Lustig to buy the scrap of the Eiffel Tower. And he parted with a significant amount of cash before Lustig made off with all the cash in a suitcase to Vienna. This scrap merchant was too humiliated by losing the money and being tricked by Lustig to testify against him. It wasn't until later when Lustig was caught for another crime that he was actually prosecuted for this one. That scrap dealer, that scrap dealer who ended up parting with thousands of pounds for the Eiffel Tower, he could have saved himself an awful lot of money and an awful lot of embarrassment if he'd taken the time to check whether Lustig's story actually checked out. 
How many of you have made mistakes before because you weren't diligent to check out the facts? I know many times when I've posted stuff on social media to then find out that what I've posted wasn't actually accurate. Anybody had to do that and backtrack? It's really important to check out the background information, isn't it? And this guy could have saved himself a whole lot of trouble if he'd taken the time to diligently check out Lustig's story. Was he really a government official or was he an imposter? Was he a faker? Was he a fraud? Because the consequences for being tricked by a con man, the, the consequences of being falsely identifying somebody, of having the wool pulled over your eyes and being tricked, can be huge. It can be huge. This man lost a whole bunch of money and he lost his pride. People lose worse than that, don't they, sometimes, when they're tricked by imposters. And today, we're going to be looking at the great importance of being able to identify a true church. A true church. We're on the series today of Church Unpacked. We've been doing this for a number of weeks now. And today, we're going to see the importance of being able to identify a true church. Because there have always been, since time began, two kinds of church. Did you know that? There have always been two kinds of church in the world. The true church and a false church. And knowing the difference between the two is absolutely vital. We'll begin looking at John 4 with this story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman to help us unpack this. In Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, in verse 24, I think it is, he uses the phrase true Worshippers, true worshippers. He says, the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But why use that phrase? Why use the phrase true worshippers? Have you ever thought about that? I remember dawning on this a few years back and thinking, why does Jesus say true worshippers? Why doesn't he just say the worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth? Why does he put the word true before Worshippers. Well, the reason behind that is best understood by understanding something of the context to this conversation. How many of you read about the Samaritan woman and just like this woman? I think she's very likable. I think she's got some sass. Um, I think she's got some character. And I think Jesus likes her. I think Jesus enjoys the conversation that he has with her. It would have been uh, strange for a Jewish man at the time to have stopped and taken the time to speak with a woman, let alone a non-Jewish woman, a Samaritan. But Jesus does. He holds a conversation with her. And I like her. I like her sass. She's got something about her, this woman does. And in this conversation, he actually gets drawn into a bit of a theological debate with this Samaritan woman. How many of you ever been in a theological debate before on social media? I know you have. Yes, we've, we've been there. And Jesus himself gets drawn into a theological debate with this Samaritan woman. Because what happens is he reveals something about her, doesn't he, that he couldn't have known. He reveals something about this woman. There's no way he could have known were it not for his supernatural knowledge. He reveals that this woman has had five husbands and that the man that she's now with is not actually her husband. Now, the Samaritan woman, far from being put off, I know many women at this point would have walked away, shamed, embarrassed, 
<coughs> not the Samaritan woman. Not the Samaritan. She comes back with a comment. She comes back with a comment, not about relationships, but about worship. She comes back and she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. On this mountain. Now, you understand where they were at this point. They were in Shechem. And the mountain she's pointing at is Mount Gerizim. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Why bring up a discussion about worship? How is this in any way connected to what Jesus has said? Well, the Samaritans, just like the Jews, at this time, they were awaiting the coming Messiah. They were expecting, just like the Jews were, that a Savior was about to come. They had read the Old Testament scriptures and they too had decided something's about to happen here. Something's about to happen. How many of you understand you can trust God's word to predict the, the future? You can trust God's word to tell you accurately about the times and the seasons that we're living in. And so she believed the Messiah was to come. However, the Samaritans actually believed that the Jews were worshipping God the wrong way. They didn't believe that the Jews had worship right. They actually believed, the Samaritans did, that their way of worshipping God was the right way. Maybe by this question about worship, she was testing Jesus. She was testing him. Why? Because this man who she doesn't know has just revealed something that's true about her life. That's prophecy. She says, I see that you're a prophet. Now let me test you further. What do you say about true worship? Why? Because she had a belief about what true worship looked like. She wanted to see if this prophet was going to agree with her. She was testing him. The Jews believed Yahweh should be worshipped not at Mount Gerizim, like the Samaritans, but instead in Jerusalem, didn't they? They believed God had to be worshipped on Mount Moriah. They believed that that was proper. The Samaritans differed. They said, no, God is not to be worshipped in Jerusalem. We've got to worship him here on this mountain in Gerizim, in Shechem. The Jews believed that the Holy Scriptures were the law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, and the wisdom books together. The Tanakh, it's called. Whereas the Samaritans said, no, 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 you got that wrong. You're adding to God's word. The only books that constitute the word of God are the first five. The Pentateuch, the book of the law. That's the only word of God. You guys are adding to the word of God. You're falsely worshipping God. So you can see here that the debate was around true worship. The debate was around, is there a right way to worship God? Is there a right way to worship God? Think about that. Is there a wrong way to worship God? Or, on the other hand, does God accept all worship of him so long as it's done sincerely? So long as people mean it and they don't mean any harm, will God accept that worship on the basis of their sincerity? When Jesus says the true worshippers will worship in spirit and truth, he's also saying something else, isn't he? He's also saying that if there are true worshippers, then there must be what? 
there must be false worshippers. This is an uncomfortable thing to think about, isn't it? It's not pleasant to think about the fact that some worship of God is false. That some people might actually be worshipping God in a false manner. And that's a difficult thing to think about, isn't it? It's hard to accept. But it is what Jesus said. If there are true worshippers, then there must, by definition, be false worshippers. And the truth is that there have always been true worshippers and false worshippers. Always. And it will be that way until the Lord returns. And because there will always be true worshippers and false worshippers, there will always be, until Christ returns, a true church and a false church. I remember thinking of this and really struggling with it, if I'm honest with you. And I think that's because here in the West, at this particular time in history, we have a pretty dim view of God's holiness. It's not something that we like to talk about an awful lot in churches. Um, And we struggle to conceive of God kind of actually rejecting anything at all. We struggle to believe that God would ever reject worship. I actually think that the Western idea of God is more like Mr. Rogers. Anybody know Mr. Rogers? It's an American thing. But we, we tend to think of God as more like Mr. Rogers. Oh, come on up here and sit on my lap. Come on. Oh, it's wonderful. And God is a father to the believer. However, God is holy. And that truth has been horrendously underpreached to the point where we find these texts really difficult. We can't ever conceive of God turning away worship. We sort of think that he's going to be happy for people to just muddle along, you know, and just worship him whatever way they fancy. Because as long as they're doing it sincerely, as long as their heart's in it, he's going to be fine with it. But unfortunately, that's not an idea that we've gotten from Scripture, brothers and sisters. We got that idea from somewhere else. Let me prove it to you. In Scripture, right at the beginning of the book, we've got the story of Cain and Abel. You know the story? In Genesis 4, verse 3 to 5, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. No regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Next slide, please. The story of the golden calf. The story of the golden calf. Exodus 32. You can turn there quickly if you'd like. Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. Now, this is a story that's worth a second viewing. Because I missed something really, really important when I first read this story through. Because this is a classic text about idolatry, isn't it? This is where we go. If we're going to talk about idolatry and sin and, you know, the Israelites just messing up, which they always did, didn't they? (laughs) This is the one we go to, the story of the golden calf. But there's a bit more to it than meets the eye. There's a bit more to it than meets the eye. Verses 1 to 6 in chapter 32 The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in your ears of of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What's happening here? What's happening? Well, firstly, the people are tired. They're tired and they want gods that will go before them. They want to be like the nations around them. So they say, make us gods who will go before us, just like the people in the land that we're going into. And Aaron fashions this god. He builds an altar before it. And it's the people that say, behold the gods that have gone before us. But Aaron builds an altar. And he says, tomorrow will be a feast to who? To Yahweh. To Yahweh, not to Moloch, not to Baal, to Yahweh. So this is worship that is actually being offered to Yahweh, but it's being offered in a false way. There is a graven image that's been made. But actually, Aaron is intending to offer sacrifices and a feast to the true God who does exist. And when Moses comes back down the mountain, what does he hear? At first he thinks there's a battle, doesn't he? Because the noise is so loud. He says, is there a battle in the camp? And they say, no. It's mirth. It's joy that's rejoicing. People are praising God. They're so passionate. They're giving their all to him. They're having a wonderful time. And Moses came down the mountain and said, praise God, there's a revival. Let's join in. Oh, hallelujah. People are getting saved. People are so passionate in their praise of God. Oh, this is one. I've been away. Maybe I should stay away more often. No. He smashes that false idol to pieces. And many men die that day. God did not accept the worship of the Israelites when they chose to do it their way. Even though it was in his name. Even though it was passionate. Even though it may have been sincere. They actually incurred the wrath of God, not his favor. Another story, Leviticus 10. Anybody heard of these two men, Nadab and Abihu? The sons of Aaron. Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized Sorry, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. and Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Again, these guys were not Johnny-come-latelys. They were ordained priests. So when we look at this passage, it's easy to think, well, they made a mistake. 
Honest mistake. But that's actually not what the text is saying. These guys knew better. They knew better. They were priests. They knew what they should have been doing. But they chose to try and worship God in an unauthorized way. In a way that God had not commanded them to do. Now, God doesn't always strike us dead when we sin, does he? You know, if, if, the, if, the, if the case of Ananias and Sapphira was the same today, well, there'd be no one alive in the church. Amen? Because you've all lied. But on this occasion, God chose to make an example of Nadab and Abihu and their false offering of worship because it was not according to his word. But let's look again. Is, is it just that when people transgressed the law of God that the worship was false? Is it just when they didn't take God's word seriously and abide by it, keep strictly to the law? Is that enough to make worship true? Well, let's look together at Isaiah 1. Next slide, please. Isaiah 1, 11 to 17. The Lord is speaking at this point. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. These religious people in the time of Isaiah... They worshipped God very diligently according to his word. They brought the right offerings at the right times. But what was the problem here? Their heart wasn't in it. They were sinning against God. They were sinning against God, not by forgetting to offer God the proper sacrifices. You know, these guys tithed diligently. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they'd forgotten the weightier parts of the law. They'd forgotten to plead the widow's cause. They'd forgotten to correct oppression. All of it was just an act. All of it was just for show, says the prophet. And that's false worship too. It's not okay to just abide by the law. There's got to be something else. There's got to be a connection. And so when we come back to the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the Samaritans really believed, they really believed that they were the true people of Yahweh. They truly believed that they were the real church. They believed that they knew God and that God approved of their worship. What does Jesus say to her? Does he say, listen, listen, God is good. You worship on this mountain, we worship on this mountain. Do you know what? It doesn't matter. You've gotten this all wrong. You're being legalistic. You're being religious. You've got to understand God's a father. He doesn't mind how we worship him as long as we do it. Does Jesus say that? 
Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. Can you imagine being told that? Believing that you sincerely worship God the right way on this mountain. We've got it right, Jesus. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, speaking of the Jews, for salvation is from the Jews, he says. You do not know the God you claim to worship. That's a very severe thing to say. So this church of the Samaritans, in fact, was an imposter. It wasn't the true church of God. It believed it was. It believed that it had salvation. But it didn't have salvation. Jesus says no salvation is from the Jews. What a tragedy to believe that you have salvation but to be mistaken. Do you have salvation today? Is it something that worries you? Is it something you think about? Do you ever question, am I saved? I do. I do. More and more as I get older, Lord, it's something I worry about. And I think that's a mark of every true Christian. There should be assurance. But equally, there should be that question. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's only salvation in one church, and that's the church of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Belonging to his church, therefore, it really is a matter of life or death. And I know it's a harsh message, but listen, you all believe this. All of you believe it. Because when you see one of your friends come to Christ, become a Christian, and they say, there's a church just around the corner from me, It's called the Kingdom Hall. Do you think I should go there? Yeah, go there. Go ahead. Oh, wherever you choose to go, it's all great. No, you don't say that, do you? You have an issue with that because you understand that there is such a thing as a true church and a false church. And so we've got to know the marks of a true church, brothers and sisters, haven't we? Just like that scrap salesman needed to know the marks of a true government official, and he didn't know it, he paid an eternal price, not an eternal, he paid a temporal price for that. You may pay an eternal price if you misidentify the true church. If you're happy to sit under false teaching your entire life and believe that, you could be in the same sticky situation that that salesman ended up, except it won't just be money you lose. How do we tell the true church then? Next slide, please. How can we tell the true church from the false church? Is it by the outward appearance? Is it by the building? You know, can, can we tell the true church by how the building looks? We know that's not true. We, we know that the church isn't a building. The church is the ecclesia. It's the gathered people of God. So we know that's not true. Can we tell the church, true church by how that church is governed? Because in the early church period... In the patristic period, the the time after the apostles and the time up until about the mid-5th century, in that period, they actually thought that that was a good way to tell the true church from the false because they identified the true church as the institution. And they did that because as heresy sprang up, they would excommunicate the false teachers from the institution. They'd say, you can't come in uh, to this building and have communion anymore because you're spreading false teaching. Out you go. And therefore, they found that an easy way to tell what the true and false church was. However, when Martin Luther arrived on the scene in the 16th century, 
Something had changed, hadn't it? The institution itself had been corrupted. False teaching had found its way to the inside of the institution. And the institution was making poor people pay money to lessen their time in purgatory. It's called indulgences. And it had a stranglehold on the whole of Christendom. And so, rather than identifying the true church as the institution, Luther defined the true church like this. He said, the true church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. So it's not the institution, it's not the building, it's to do with the preaching of the gospel accurately and faithfully and the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. John Calvin said, the true church is wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. There it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So the true church is not to do with the building. The true church can't be identified by whether it's got bishops or elders or deacons. It's not the institution. It's determined by whether the word of God, the truth of God is being preached fairly and honestly and whether the sacraments are being administered. Now, no perf- no, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Every church has got some mixture of truth and error because every church is full of humans. As the old adage goes, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll only ruin it. But the mark of a true church, brothers and sisters, will be that there is a consistent and clear and honest handling of the Scriptures. That will be the mark of a true church. And that's why we don't consider the Church of the Latter-day Saints to be a true church. That's why we don't consider the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses to be a true church because there is not a fair handling, a consistent and fair handling of God's word. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, said, when the preaching of a church conceals the gospel message of salvation by faith alone from its members so that the gospel message is not clearly proclaimed and has not been proclaimed for some time, the group meeting there is not a church. Can we tell a true church by how passionate the worship is? Well, I'll say one thing. A distinct lack of passion in worship, for me, should be a red flag. If you walk in and it's like a wake at a funeral, that should be a red flag. That should be a red flag. Where's the passion? However, passion alone does not a true church make. Passion alone doesn't make a true church The Israelites were extremely passionate, weren't they? In front of the golden calf. But it didn't make that worship true. Can we tell a true church by how many people are going? There's certainly nothing wrong with big churches, is there? Nothing wrong with that. I'd love our church to be a bit bigger. Amen? A few more people coming along. A few more salvations. A few more baptisms. Amen? I wouldn't have a problem with that. However... Numbers alone don't make a true church. The prophets of Baal outnumbered Elijah on Mount Carmel, didn't they? But it didn't twist God's arms up his back and say, hang on a minute, we're on the wrong team here, Elijah. God doesn't work by that method. Only Elijah's sacrifice was acceptable. (coughs) Excuse me. Finally, 
A true church can't be identified just by true doctrine either. Okay? A true church will always have sound doctrine. That's always the case. And it will be preached clearly. However, the presence of right doctrine alone doesn't necessarily make a church true. Because Jesus said the the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that word there is not capital S spirit. Jesus isn't actually talking about the Holy Ghost there. He's talking about your heart. The inner man. So if there's no inward worship going on, if there's no life transformation happening doesn't matter if the doctrine is preached and is dry. It's not a true church. You know, I heard somebody say recently, speaking about the situation in the Church of England. Now, I'm not C of E, so there's lots more detail to this situation than I probably am aware of. However, this individual, who I respect very highly, said, I'm not at all worried, he said. I'm not at all worried that 90% of the C of E bishops voted in favor of blessing something that God calls an abomination. I'm not at all worried because we've still got the liturgy. We've still got orthodox liturgy and the book of common prayer. And as long as we have that, we don't need to worry. I thought, dear me, I think he's missed part of what Jesus said here. Not just in truth, in spirit. There needs to be true spiritual work. It's not okay for us to just parrot sound doctrine if we don't actually take it in and allow it to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. A true church will have evidence of the Holy Spirit at work, won't it? It'll see lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We will see the fruit of the Spirit at work, not just the gifts. Amen? There's, there's a, a craven addiction to the gifts of the Spirit in the charismatic church today where all we want to see is people getting healed. We don't care if the pastor's a philanderer. As long as he's moving in healing, he can be doing all kinds of things behind the scenes. We don't care. I'm telling you, that is going to drag the charismatic church to hell. We need the gifts and the fruit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the marks of a true church. And God, brothers and sisters, will only accept worship according to his word. It's no use trying to worship him your way. You know, innovation is amazing when it comes to inventing things, isn't it? The 1968 Olympic Games, Fosby comes in and does the Fosby flop. Wins the gold. Invented a new way. Innovation is great in sports. Innovation could be great in the world of science. However, innovation is not great in the worship of God. He will only be worshipped according to his word. And there's no other salvation outside of Christ and his church. There's no other way, is there, to know God other than by his means. He determines how we're supposed to know him. If you want to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll finish reading this last few verses. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? 
And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is your God. Please stand. Father, we thank you for teaching us from your word today. We thank you, Lord God, that you've not left us without a guide in this world. You said to your disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. You've sent us your Holy Spirit to indwell us, to teach us and lead us in all truth. And you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have given us your holy word and the scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray today that if there are any amongst us who don't know truly whether they're saved, who don't know the true way of salvation, Lord God, we pray that they would know it is only in Christ Jesus and in him alone. And that it is only by faith and not by works. And we pray today that if you have not yet repented for your sins and come down, knelt before the cross, and given up all that you are to Christ, do it now. We pray, Lord God, that we as a church would continue to take seriously our job and our calling in being worshippers of you. Let us not take liberties, but let us worship you with reverence and with awe. Amen.